0: Torah itself, of course, commands us to search for truth. Bam, as one of the greatest minds in all of Jewish history, had told us that we have the obligation of searching for truth. As did Sa'ajah, Shimon Hanagid, the Ga'on, and a whole host of other Jewish thinkers all have said to us the Torah demands of us to search for truth. We use God's given faculty of the mind in order to search for truth. And we search for our truth In whatever discipline, whatever area, wherever we're going to find truth, we have an obligation of trying to understand that truth of the world. In our particular generation, in many disciplines, we're going to find truth. Specifically, we're going to study the contact point, the nexus between science and religion. Does science provide us with truth? We would say yes to that. Does religious teachings provide us with truth? So yes to that. This seems to be, ostensibly, in some manner or form, a conflict between the truths of science and the truths of religion. And yet, those of us who've studied Jewish thought for the last 2,000 years would know that this is not a new endeavor, yet we just simply follow in the footsteps, as we've shown before, of Harambam, Ralbag, and many, many others who have sought out truth in the realm of science, of course found truth in the realm of religion, and yet when these two disciplines clashed and there was confusion, there was perplexity, one, the leaders of that generation, had to provide a guide for the perplexed who saw a conflict between science and religion. Now, we believe that this area of study would help us come closer to Akadosh Baruch Hu. And perhaps one would say that that really is the mandate, that really is the goal that all of us actually have. Our goal is to come closer to Borei alam. Our goal is to understand God more profoundly. One can raise the question, whether or not he who pursue, pursues the truth of science within the framework of understanding it as a manifestation of God's world, whether or not that person will be different, closer, question mark, than that person who studies Torah. Exclusively. That means that if a person spends, let's say he has 40 hours and studies 40 hours in the Bad Midrash or he has 40 hours to study a scientific text, those two people will certainly come up with different perceptions, understandings of God's world, no doubt. Is one higher or lower than the other is an important question. I am certainly not saying that with a study of science that one will necessarily come closer to bore alam than one who spends all of his time in a Ba'am but, but certainly...
1: You're forgetting a very important thing. What about the element of, of Kedushah when somebody studies? You're not going to get I'm that su- from science.
0: You can study science as a, a way of finding Kedushah as well. Really? Of course, we'll show you in a second, that which we've mentioned before. But it's Pashut. It's obvious. So. I will tell you in a minute. Okay. But we would all agree over here that these two people, these two models, one who spends all of his time in a midrash and one who spends all of his time in a scientific laboratory, yet pursues his goal of studying and looking for truth, will both come closer to Akadosh Baruch Hu in different ways. We would agree this in different ways. But let's emphasize again what we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that in this endeavor we are simply... Following the footsteps of Harambam, who clearly told us that in order to love God and stand in awe of Bore what should I study? The natural order. Now, strikingly, Joey's point is well taken. Harambam, in that context, when he raised the question, How do you come to love God? How do you come to stand in awe of God? It doesn't tell you go to the Ben Midrash, it tells you go to the laboratory, which is an amazing point. And of course, we had seen this on other occasions. Harambam tells you, by studying the natural order, you will come to know and love and stand in awe of Bode Olam. It's an amazing statement. Of course, the Rambam, four chapters later, is simply echoing this very famous notion that studying physics and metaphysics is what's called a ma'aseh gadol. That's great stuff. To study Gemara and have the Havayot abayev rava which are the arguments of the rabbis on five points of Jewish law, that's called ma'aseh That's small potatoes. The meat, and, the meat and steak of the meal is physics and metaphysics, God's natural law, God's natural world. From a study of the world, you come to understanding God more profoundly than by studying Abiyah Of course, you need A to reach B. Unless you are fully well-versed In the A of the argumentation and dialectics of Gemara, you cannot achieve an understanding of physics and metaphysics. So we do understand that. But in this particular context, Harambam is saying very clearly that the goal ultimately is Harambam. Not all would agree with him, but the goal is to reach an understanding and a love and awe of Borei Olam through a study of physics and metaphysics. He understands physics as Maaseh Bereshit, creation, and Maaseh Merkava as divine providence. Metaphysics, so that is what one wants to study. Now, <clears throat> can one come close to border alam in other areas? Yes, but do I have to come close to God only in the area of Torah? It would seem to be the Raman would say no. Raman would say that one can find closest border alam in the study of the natural world if done with a proper sense of inquiry one of the important lessons that I want us to learn is that nobody is absolute. Whether it's Einstein or anybody, the Gombe of Vilna, nobody is absolute. Nobody has complete access to knowledge. And one want us to have the humility of understanding, Khan that I know only up to this point beyond that I don't know. And if I don't know beyond it, then I have to remain humble. So I want us to approach the study of either one of these disciplines with that proper humility to achieve Kiddushah in that endeavor. Now, therefore, what the Rambam says, is certainly legitimate, and one need not really point to any other authorities other than the Rambam. The Rambam is the Rambam. That's all you have to say. When the Rambam says something, it's the Rambam saying it, and therefore I don't have to prove this point to you through any other sources. The point is sufficiently proven because the Rambam said it. Although I could find multiples of other great Mishnayim to the same point, and of course I could find equally an equal number of other Gidolim, other Deshurim, who say the opposite of the Rambam. That only the Bermat is the only place where you're going to find Borei Olam. But that should not discourage us. Because it's appropriate that when you have an entire people, there are going to be differences in each person how to find Borei Olam. So if the Rambam says, go this way, and the Shifu says, go this way, that's fine, that's appropriate, that's wonderful, and we're happy to enjoy both Endeavors, elu the elu, and I can be comfortable with both. What would be the wrong move? In and out, 45 minutes. Okay. It would be inappropriate to say that only my road to the palace of Borei Lama is the right road, and no other roads are appropriate. The goal is the palace. Either one of these two roads would be appropriate if done with the appropriate spirit. It's obvious to everybody here that one can study science with the inappropriate approach. Equally true is that one can study Torah with an inappropriate approach. Obvious? Of course it's obvious. When you go to graduate school, don't went to graduate school in a secular environment, there are multiples of people who love Torah study, but as a secular pursuit. The majesty, the discipline, the ethics, spirituality of the Bible was beloved to many. But it was nothing more than a book of poetry, narrative, ethics, spirituality. It was not God's message to the world. They studied without a yarmulke. They put their Tanakh on the floor and it was no big deal in that context. There are thousands of people that study Bible secularly. It's amazing, but it's true. Yes, it's also true that many of those secular who study the Bible ended up becoming religious because of the powerful message of the Bible itself. But one can study the Bible as one can study perhaps one of the most spiritual of all Jewish literatures, the Zohar or Kabbalistic teachings, one can also study this secularly as a secular person and not be or be impacted upon by this message. So what's true of science is true of Torah as well. One can study either of these disciplines appropriately and properly with the right tools and the right attitude and one can study them inappropriately as well. Again, we can live very easily with those others who deny the re- or reject this area of coming close to God. They search for truth, we search for truth. Elu the Elo is the best way of expressing this notion that both are searching for Kirvak Elohim of understanding and coming closer to Borea Olam. I would say that a very good example. Of studying science and coming close to God would be last week's recitation of the scientific facts that should have wowed everybody who heard them they're extraordinary they're overwhelming they're amazing the extent of the universe the size of the Sun which is only an average size Sun the weight of a neutron star one teaspoon 600 million tons should give any person cause to pause take a step back and say, It's extraordinary the world that Akadosh Baruch Hu has created. And obviously what I've given you last week was only a simple recitation of a few facts. There are multiple more, which we will be bringing in as we do. And when one says something to the extent that a quasar, which is the brightest object in the universe, is the equivalent of 10,000 billion suns, brightness, and you say... Wow. And that's all. And then you stand in awe of the Creator who is Master and Sovereign even over the Quasar. Extraordinary. When one contemplates those 15 facts, when one one thinks about those 15 facts, not simply as scientific facts, but rather as manifestations of the Creator of Borei Olam, then how could you not come closer to God by virtue of these facts? Although it is true that there are multiples of people who study these facts and know these facts and don't come closer. That's true. But since I choose to pursue truth because God seals truth, Gemara in Masechet Yoma tells us, HaTavosh HaKadosh Baruch God seals truth. And because the Rambam told me, Shema Amit Misha shamarah," I have the obligation of pursuing truth from whatever its source. That's the Rambam statement. So because of that, I have no problem studying this and I believe that I will pursue it with the right appropriate spirit, with the right sense, and achieve therefore a kind of Kiddushat Elohim and Kirvat Elohim that I would not have achieved otherwise. So this study, of course, does in fact raise questions. The study almost perhaps of any literature in the Jewish framework will raise questions. Maaseh ben raises a lot of questions. We've tried to deal with some of these questions throughout the years that we've studied. We've used in the beginning to try to solve these questions. We've used um, Big Bang and Creation as also a book to try to solve these questions. And each one brings us to one degree or other a sense of how to solve these issues. How to solve these questions. The two books that were used were very different. Each one had its own methodology of trying to solve these questions. Each is by a trained professional scientist from MIT, from Yale, from University of Chicago. That's important to me because the science is not a fake science. You'll have many rabbis who write fake science. Not interesting, not true science. And use it only to prove religion. That bomb is very much against. You have to pursue truth in its purity. You pursue truth. What are your results? What are your results? There's conflict, there's perplexity, there's confusion. Fine. He'll provide the guide to that. Each one of these two people tries to provide a guide to resolve the conflict between science and religion, much as had the Rambam a thousand years ago. We have no problem with all of this. We're not going to say that we've reached the end of our quest for truth. It goes without saying that there's much more that could be understood and solved. And that's the ongoing pathway, the quest, the ongoing pathway of trying to understand God's world and subsequently God himself to whatever extent the human being can. That's the goal. Now, as we mentioned, there are two essential areas of disagreement between science and religion. One is, of course, biological, the issue of evolution. One, of course, is physics. And here you have the question of creation, what's the place at the very beginning, and exactly the age of the universe. Put by science at between 12 and 20 billion years old, put by Bereshit at seven days of creation, how do we try to correspond these two disciplines.
1: <clears throat>
0: and of course, both of these issues touch upon the nature of the unknown Ma'asemer Kava as to divine providence. How did Akadosh Hu create the world? How did Akadosh Hu create the human being? Science answers evolution. Torah answers something else. Perhaps Torah is answering evolution as well, but in a different garb in a different format, in a different fashion. Those are some of the issues that we are trying to understand. Harambah, please. Did we say that civilization,
1: from civilization till today, everyone the best civilization? Yes,
0: yes. From the, the first, the oldest city is about five 6,000 years old, which happens to be Yericho. It happens to match. Civilization happens to match. That's correct. But we're talking over here, of course, not civilization. Let's about the universe. Right. Good. Harambam, of course, spoke extensively about the issue of Maaseb Bereshit, Merkava in seeing and knowing that on a certain level of Maaseb Bereshit and Maaseb Merkava, these two disciplines, physics and metaphysics, flow one into the other. That's what Harambam explored, that's what we want to explore. Now, before we go into an issue of God and the Big Bang, which is discovering harmony between science and spirituality, using Kabbalah, using Zohar. We have never touched upon Zohar before in our study. We had studied, of course, pure hard science, and so how it relates to Betashit. This book is not about pure hard science. I have the feeling that we did enough of that, at least for the immediate. We studied three books on pure hard science. We studied last year, last two years, The Symbiotic Universe, which is pure hard science. Poor on theology. Poor on spirituality. Shallow, in fact, on its theology and its spirituality. But some scientists are never spiritually shallow. That's what happens. I have no problem with that. I didn't use him for his profound spiritual depths. I used him for his probing scientific analysis as to what the universe is all about. And my job was to try to correspond that the beta sheet. And of course, we had seen Avi Ezer who is allegorical understanding of Sheet I found somewhat problematic. We discussed it, we spoke about it, provided some insight, and gave us a little bit of a push, and I think, in the right direction, and so on. We're going to study a little bit about the Zohar first. before Not too much. Not allowed to do too much. Anybody here over uh, 40? So you can't study too much of it. Oh, just you. Sorry. You too. Actually, without telling you, it's me too. I'm half a decade. I have, I have a decade? No, I'm half a century. Right, that's actually right. So, I can, we can. Maybe the youngsters among you should just... Uh, come, right, like, right. You play four hours of tennis a day, that's youngster <laughs> youngsters. that's okay. So, we're going to read a little bit to get a sense of it. My intent of studying and reading the Zohar is to, A, as an introduction to the spirituality of Daniel Matt, is a um, PhD in, in uh, Kabbalah, very spiritual person. He happened to have got his PhD at the same time... I was studying at the same time. I was doing philosophy. He was doing Kabbalah. And this is one of his books. Unusual person. His father was a famous rabbi. He didn't pursue the rabbinate. He chose to pursue rather the study of mysticism, which felt he felt, and it did, fit well into his personality. It just Some people just are attracted to certain disciplines. He was attracted from the earliest time that I knew him, which is almost 20 years ago, 25 years ago, into a study of Kabbalah. Both theoretical Kabbalah, speculation, as well as practical Kabbalah. Practical Kabbalah means trying to expand one's own spiritual horizons. Not all of us who do Judaism try to expand our sense of spirituality. Hard really to explain what I'm talking about. Maybe the following would. For some strange reason, when I was at YU, I was hooked into a, besides regular studies, into a group of people who were really unusual. These people were all trying to find a deeper understanding. Some became rabbis, some became PhDs in philosophy and whatnot, some became uh, teachers of philosophy, but they were striving for something more than simply what the university provided them with. Part of what they did, and me also, because I hooked into it for some strange reason, we studied Mitzila-i-Sharim, one of the great works of musad at twelve o'clock at night, it had to be 12 o'clock at night in Lampert Auditorium, which is the huge 2,000-seated auditorium at Shear University. Now, there's an awesomeness to that. The awesomeness of that is sitting four people in a circle in a huge auditorium of 2,000 seats, alone, in the dark, studying Kabbalah only with a small light. Studying... What's name? Sorry? I don't want to say. Because it sounds too wiggy if I were to say it to that. It went one step beyond that, where these people and I was kind of just a hooker on, onlooker. I wasn't really part of it because I was afraid of it. On one hand, I just couldn't deal with it. I wasn't interested in opening myself up to what they were doing. On the one hand, on the other hand, there was something really very strong about it, something very special and spiritual about it. The next part of the program that we had done was we had gone to um, for our Shabbat weekend to a place in Riverdale called Tuscanini's Mansion which subsequently became Yeshiva S.A.R. Salanta Akiba Yeshiva, S.A.R. in Riverdale. And there were very strict instructions as to how to spend Shabbat. You had to necessarily bring only one suit. There was only ten men, ten people from the Yeshiva, from Wayu, No other people, no families, no women, just ten people. You had to prepare Deva Torah. You had to prepare a song. You had to prepare to bring a suit that was taken to the cleaners that... Wednesday, Thursday, and brought only for Shabbat. You're preparing yourself for Shabbat. And the meals had to be done in quiet, except for sharing the Torah. Nothing. There's no Lashon Hara, obviously. And then in the afternoon, you had to take a walk along the Hudson River, alone, thinking, and then coming back and sharing your experiences. And tefillah also was structured in order to achieve some kind of, what we felt was spirituality. Often enough, when we experience Shabbat, it's beautiful. I'm Ishabat. Shabbat taught here are beautiful. The learning, the singing, the tables, the family, all that we do is wonderful. But sometimes it doesn't open up one's soul to the higher realms. You, you need a kind of offbeat, perhaps, experience that's going to open up one to spirituality, to the broader breadth of Hashem's world. Hashem's world. Last night, I thought of Stanley. I often think of Stanley. I was looking home from Shul, and I was looking at the stars. I came home a little bit later because I was in Shul afterwards, I came home a little bit later looking at the stars, and I looked at my story about a dozen stars. What was my first thought? What a universe? Yes. And I, the first thought was that the, all the dozens of stars that I've seen are only a reflection of the billion, trillion stars in the universe. I'm only seeing in the stars in my little bit of, a, of the Milky Way galaxy. And then we had discussed a couple of years ago, four or five years ago, at the famous Gemara Pesachim, whether the stars are moving or the, the spheres are moving, what's really moving, and in fact, that those stars that I'm seeing there are not necessarily right there. It just took a couple of billion years for the light to get from there to over here. So what I'm seeing now is what was maybe two billion years ago. Right? We discussed this last week. When you look out in the universe, you're seeing what was. You seeing Bereshit. We can almost see Bereshit. Amazingly enough, and of course, then the thought came to me: Hadesh Bereshit, which is the last part of the prayer, and you say Or. It's amazing to say that all of that is encompassed in, in when you look at a star. So a star is really much more than simply a star. It has something extraordinary to it. All that you study, you think about, you take a walk. You see the moon, The last night was a beautiful night. see the stars, and you think of Stanley Schwartz, and you end up feeling a little bit more spiritual. And maybe it was having Yahat here, and these children everything else combined was a very, very nice experience. So, sometimes we want to open ourselves up to something more than simply the Shabbat experience that we have. Not everybody is brave enough. Not everybody can do so. We had studied on other occasions the four great rabbis of the Mishnah who attempted to open themselves up to greater spirituality in the way that it's termed in the Mishnah in Masek HaGigah is Pardes, paradise. And of course it had disastrous results. You had Ben Azai, Ben Zoma Hashem Ben and Abi Akiva. And Ben Zuma lost his mind from being overly exposed to spirituality. Ben Azai chose to stay on the other side of the of spirituality and therefore became purely spiritual which we use the word death for but in the teachings of the Kabbalah it's simply being more spiritual than physical. He chose to be more spiritual than physical and therefore he remained as a spiritual personality and died. The and yah in a very strange consequence he he cut himself off from the Jewish people could not do, deal with it blew his mind and the and yah became the other. Referred to subsequently in the Talmud as Ahed, the other. Never really reconciling with his people. Amazing personality. I have a great deal of sympathy. And one almost says, love for Yishab ben Yah because of what he went through. And yet, you have to take a step back from him because ultimately became a traitor to the Jewish people. So one has to think about him. And Rabbi Akiva was the only one. Nichnas b'shalom yitzay b'shalom he was able to enter into the realm of spirituality with peace and harmony and was able to, Yassab shalom to emerge from it whole. Able to assimilate this great world of spirituality into his own limited world. It's almost saying that you're impacting the infinite with the finite. How does that work? The infinite overwhelms the finite. And only that Akiva was able somehow to... Absorb the infinite and still remain sane. Better. And still remain. Still remain alone. Many have explained that the reason Abi Kiba was able to do so, because he's the one that established the categories of halacha. Halacha is that which normalizes mystical experiences. It's normal mysticism in a sense. That it becomes so normative that you're able to celebrate Borei Olam in appropriate categories, and by virtue of that, we're able to coexist and live with the infinite. The infinite and the finite really clash. Zohar will tell us a little bit about what does one do when the infinite and the finite clash. In fact, it raises a better question. What's the better question over here? How can the finite ever come to be if the infinite is all infinite? How does the finite come to be? How does God create if God is literally yeah. infinite? Literally infinite. Exactly. How could there be any creation of the finite if God is all? The Zohar, amazingly enough, is very concerned about these kinds of issues. The Zohar is the kind of work which is demanding and one would say probably impossible to understand. Literally impossible to understand for a lot of reasons. We're not used to thinking this way. We're not ready for it. We're not interested in it. But nevertheless provides us with a glimpse, a hint, and a certain kind of a truth that helps us push one step forward. Perhaps only one step forward. That's all I'm trying to get. is one step forward. Each time we meet one little step forward because that which we're doing is demanding, not easy. And if we get one step ahead, you'll see that hopefully at the end, you'll reach at least a partial goal. What makes the Zohar a great
1: source as opposed to an like a rabbi?
0: I think you have to first read it and see without me answering that question, noting my preliminary answer to what you're saying, to what you're asking. Also, the claim with which the Zohar has been met by the Jewish world. Perhaps along the lines of any work of Jewish thought, it's either acclaimed by the Jewish world, the greatest thinkers of the Jewish world. I mean just the Am, the average person, I mean by the greatest of Jewish minds, the most spiritual of people, those people who have a right to have an opinion, and often enough, certain works are just not viewed as making the grade, so they're just kind of cast aside to the dust of history, it's the end of the story. But a work that has a 1,000, 2,000 years staying power means that it has a grasp on the Jewish collective Jewish soul. Once it has that kind of grasp on the collective Jewish soul, then it speaks for itself. Exactly that. In other words, let's look at the works of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. 50 years ago, when Rabbi Moshe Feinstein wrote Shuva, it was viewed as big deal. He was a young man who was maybe 45 years old. So when he said something, he said, Who is this, ra- is this young little uh, patilach. What's the big deal? They're a greater geonim than he. So it's the shuvah at that point, irrespective of its content, was not viewed as having the staying power yet to see what it's really all about. But, then Rav Moshe became Rav Moshe in the eyes of the Torah world. After 40 years of writing, of saying, of speaking, of piety. So he now has a holding pattern of greatness. <clears throat> holding pattern of greatness. Meaning, for this generation, this is Adav Moshe Feinstein, holding pattern of greatness. Why do I say holding pattern? Because it's not a thousand years yet. If a thousand years from now, we are reading Shavuot Adav Moshe Feinstein, 500, 300, whatever it may be, then that becomes the standard, classic work. Bam is the great example of that. Sa'aja. All of these works that we're still studying, one of the lessons of life is that you don't study that which is either irrelevant, silly, trivial, foolish, superficial. You don't. The great minds only study that which is significant and important. So if we're still studying Haramban, if we're still studying Sa'aja, it means they have something to contribute to the advance of the Jewish thought, Jewish world. So Hamavaday Yosef, we'll see. We'll see. The Zohar is already here. Zohar really says interesting things. Does it mean we'll understand everything? No. They will agree with everything? Perhaps yes, perhaps not. Maybe what they will say, we won't understand enough to agree with it or disagree with it. Oh, that's fine. I just want to go one little step further. Not more than that with the use of the Zohar. And then try to take a little bit more of a leap with Daniel book. I don't think the Zohar, at our stage of learning knowledge, can go more than a little step. So we'll go a little step, then we'll see. Similarly, one can raise the question about Rabbi Salavachic. Right? He wrote a number of works, not in the area of Sheolot Shivot, not in the area of questions and answers, not in the area of response to halakha. But in areas of philosophy. It's ironic, because he's a great mind in halacha, a great mind in philosophy. He didn't write in the area of halacha, presumably because he believed that there are others who have great minds that could write in the area of halacha. They don't need me. What the, word, the Jewish world needs are my works of philosophy. Isha halakha, lonely man of faith, and all the essays that he had written. Are these classical works? I would say yes. What does that mean? Because a thousand years from now, they're still going to be reading these works, and one is going to plumb their depths to understand a little bit more insightfully what Hashem is all about, Joshua is all about, Halakha is all about. I think they'll still be reading these works. But we'll see. It also isn't a holding pattern. Yeah, Morris? Question?
1: <coughs> the authorship, is that collective authors or one?
0: Author or There's major discussions about this particular issue. It certainly has material going back to Rabbi Shimon Bari Yochai, one of the famous of Tanaim. But also we could find that there's other, perhaps, material that came in afterwards as well. It was publicized, it was only an oral teaching for a thousand years, and was and only to a select group of people. In other words, it was a statement, an explanation, an elaboration, etc., expansion. So it goes back to the Talmudic period of time, but it was only made public in the 13th century by Moshe de Leon. It was made public, but he collected what was earlier material, along the lines of the Gemara and Mishnah as well. Mishnah and Gemara as well was, of course, edited, organized by the Biudayanasi, Ibn Kadosh, but also collected early material going back 500 years earlier, easily, 500, 600 years earlier. Collected material, and then edited it, and organized it, and then published it. So.
1: Rabbi Moshe de Leon was the editor?
0: I would use that term, although people disagree with that term. He's the one that publicized it. So he was a publish, pub, publicist, somewhat of an editor, somewhat of a publicist, all that together. So
1: what
0: year was that? He was in the 14th century in Spain. But it has a history way beyond that as well and previous to that as well. I would not limit it to that period of time.
1: This is also the same time as Ramban. Ramban. Ramban.
0: Ramban. This post-dates the Ramban. Ramban was 1135-1204. The Ramban was 1200-1270 the Leon was in the middle of the 13th century, which is around the time of the Ramban. And of course, as you know, the Ramban's commentary on Torah incorporates many of the insights of the Kabbalistic teachings. Not publicly, not openly. At that period of time, the Zohar was still a private work. You couldn't just simply buy a Zohar and and read it. And therefore, the Ramban will couch his understanding of Torah interpretation as Kabbalah with the word Sod, secret teaching, or the whoever knows what took talking about, knows the Maskil Yidom, whoever is wise. Shh, don't speak about this. It's a very important term in the in the because because not everybody can right not everybody could absorb the teachings of the Zohar and still understand. And of course, the model of Hagiga, which we discussed already, is there. The model of a got, which if you study too much too soon, it could explode your mind. Easily. It's pashut. And the Geban Hagar tells, I think the Be'a Kibad tells his students that when you go to that other realm, only taste the honey and say enough. If you overindulge in eating too much of it, then it will be harmful to you. Just taste it. But if you try to consume too much of it, it could be harmful to you. Which is, yes, that issue of too much knowledge is a serious one. And you're not allowed to pursue knowledge to all extents at any time. But rather, one has to pursue it very slowly with baby steps. So That issue is true of the Zohar. It's true of Rabbi Akiva. That realm has to be very slowly digested. So we don't aim or claim to try to digest anything other than a small smattering of what the Zohar is all about.
1: Is the Zohar Rabbi the, the uh, workings of heaven? Is that on
0: a certain that level, on a certain level, absolutely yes. But what we understand of it, its outer garb, as it's presented to us, may not necessarily be a reflection of that true teachings. Was that no, I don't clear? what i mean by that let me say it again i'll say it again let's say i'm talking to a child right and the child asks me about sex right i'm not going to explain to my nine-year-old or 10 or 11 or 12 and because i'm shy myself even my 15 16 year old either what sex is all about can't do it right so what do you do then you either tell a story and you take the truth of this intimate experience and you clothe it in a certain garb. So the child then, if you're really good, I'm not necessarily really good at explaining things, but if you're really good about it, the child understands the outer garb and says it's appropriate and likes it and and learns the profound teaching about love and responsibility and physical intimacy has to come along with the responsibility of an emotional connection as well with love, all that, and doesn't really know the dynamics. The act, exactly. It's what Bam says in this beautiful, which we've studied together, you and I, in his introduction to Moreno Bukhim, he talks about an apple, a golden apple covered with silver filigree that from a distance you see the gold, only bits of it. And it looks very tempting, it looks very inviting, it looks very wonderful, very fine, the silver. But when you come up close, you see the inside, the truth, is much more precious than the outside which from a distance looks nice. But there will be a time when the child has to learn. But only when the child is right for it. So, the spirituality and the heaven doctrines of of the Zohar is clothed in the words. We may understand the words and not understand the core. We may not even understand the words, which is okay as well. Many believe that just simply reading the words without understanding is, is sufficient. Do you don't know the words they're saying? Many, 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 especially in the Slavic tradition, was like, read the words. All you must do is read the words without understanding a word of it, and that's sufficient. Because the words themselves have a power to it. Part of the teachings of the Zohar is that the words themselves have a spiritualizing effect on the individual and on the upper realms. Now, we may be of such an orientation as rationalists that we have to understand that which we read but not everybody believes that. Different perspectives would say to us that just a mouthing of words is valuable. I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, true or false, because we the person. A person can go to a class, understand nothing of it, and walk out spiritualized. Would you buy that? Why would you why would you not?
1: He hears the music. He hears
0: the music. Good. It's a good point. It's a very good analogy. Because you could be moved by Beethoven's fifth or Mozart's 40th and not know, the, not know it at all. It's amazing. Mordechai I'm sorry?
1: There's an NYU doctor. If you have a bad back, you read his book. No. You don't have to understand the book. If you go to him for surgery, if you go to for sur- he's a top doctor in NYU. And if you go to him for surgery, he tells you read his book and you won't need the surgery. So you read the book. If you have a bad back, you read the book. You don't have to understand the book. After that, you will feel better. That's not I've experienced sometimes. it. I've not, well, I've heard people say that. facts is really from the mind. The bad back. Really I'll tell
0: facts. it to my back because I have my bad back. You are not hurting me right now, so you're in my mind.
1: I, I know somebody. Who's I agree. That philosophy.
0: I don't agree, disagree with you at all. At all, I think it is mind over matter.
1: But, but some, some, you know, some, some. right? Depends upon us. Right. Views, very, very effective. Issue. Very effective.
0: Okay, so, so. That, that's exactly my point. That there's certain disciplines that you could just hear. I hear Mordechai, who likes Beethoven's Fifth for some strange reason. He has no clue as to what it means, and it means something. I studied in college music, an advanced level of music, of classical music, which is extraordinary. The scenes, the motifs, the repetition, the variation of it. So I can analyze both Beethoven's fifth fairly well. And Mozart's four years. music as well. Fairly well. Not great. Not very good at music, as you know. But fairly well. But he doesn't understand anything that I do know about it. And guess what?
1: He
0: he, he, he hums it all day long. He's just thinking of the back. He likes that music. It just rings in his brain for some reason.
1: Well, they're that. Or in his heart.
0: Or his heart. Yeah.
1: They're studying that. And even, you know, in the moment womb. In utero. Room, sure. <laughs> where they're rocking away. The synapses of one at those early ages. Right. And yes. the mathematical sequences of the music mm-hmm. help them to make their connections. connections. Right. right,
0: right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. My kids did 60s music when they were
1: movies. <laughs> they, they were
0: twisting and chatting, I think. That's what, so they cried all day, all night. They, just, they did 60s music. Except for Mordecai. He was a little different. So now we want to go to the Zohar. Right? We're concerned with the Zohar with two issues of how Hashem created the world, what was the process, and of course we want, we're concerned about, we're not going to do all this, but of course, Maaseh Merkava, which is based on the first chapter of Yehazkel, how Hashem governs the world. The Zohar is the bridge between these two disciplines, physics and metaphysics. Physics, how Hashem created the world, Metaphysics how Hashem governs the world. Again, I will caution you and tell you that we don't hope to understand all the Zoharist has to say, but simply that it goes, that Bereshit, goes beyond the simple, literal meaning of the text. That's what I'm trying to show you. That when you read the Zohar, you will just go beyond the simple, literal meaning of the text. And if we see that, I'll be happy. That we're not bound to the text. The text really is not limiting, but the text of Bereshit really is expanding. And once I've expanded my text, then I'm able to think about science as a commentary on my Bereshi text. That's where we're going to go. Now, <clears throat> we're going to begin with the, with an introduction. Page 1. Page 1. Page 1. Page 1. Page 1. Page 1. Page 2 of the introduction. You all should have it should be page, what is it, XV, uh, it's on the bottom of here, I'm going to put it over here. It's uh, 13, bottom of 13, okay? And now also take page 2 of this, which is page 14, okay? That's the first step. We're going to do this slowly, carefully, and with steps. Okay, now, we look at the, I'm look interested now in the bottom of page 13. The Zohar humbly professes to be no more than a commentary on Torah. It might hence be interesting to hear its own expressed views on the correct method of biblical interpretation. Exegesis means interpretation. The Zohar says, Woe unto those who see in the law nothing but simple narratives and ordinary words. Were this really the case, then we, even today, compose a law equally worthy of of admiration. But it is all quite otherwise. Every word of the law contains an elevated sense and a sublime mystery. Page 2. Mm-hmm. You don't have it? Why don't you have it?
1: You only made three. No, I made five. <laughs> <laughs> which we used to have
0: five. It's because it double' It's not my fault. You all have it? Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And a sublime mystery. This is the way the Zohar views the Torah text. The narratives of the law are but the raiment mm-hmm. in which it is suave. In other words, the, what you have in front of you is the cloth, the raiment, the outer covering a bat, with an internal core. So you have the external and the internal. The gold is on the internal. The outer is the external silver filigree. Woe unto him who mistakes the raiment, the outside for the Lord's itself. It was to avert such a calamity that David prayed. Gal and I... Open my eyes, that I might behold the wondrous things out of thy law. Law means the Torah narrative. Another passage qu- states similarly, but even more strikingly, Zohar says, "If the law merely consisted of ordinary words and narratives, like the stories of Esav, Hagar, and Laban, or like the words which were spoken by Balam's donkey or by Balaam himself, why should it have been called the law of truth, a per- the perfect law, the faithful testimony of God?" Right, so this is telling us over here that from the Zohar's point of view, your outer text is only an outer text, and woe is to he who reads the text only as outer text without having an eye to the inner core meaning to the goals as to what the Torah is really all about.
1: So he says, the shot is not really where it's at. Right. A Zohar man,
0: he will say to the contrary. He will say that the inner court teachings is a, is pshat. a real peshat. Yeah, that is amazing. That's, a very nice day. that's what he will say. Right. Nice that peshat to him is not what we think it is, but is the peshat is the true right, the and to him it is right. 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 So it's an interesting question because what you're coming with, what, what are you coming to the text with, what your tools are, mm-hmm. for a kabbalist, for a kabbalist, comes to the text, he's going to, going to see what you see as hidden as obvious. And when you get to the reading of the Zohar, you'll say, what is this talking about? Right. It's not obvious to me at all. Mm-hmm. But to him, it'll be obviously obvious. Mm-hmm. Obviously obvious to him as to what this all about. Now, you won't be, Charlie especially, will not be happy with this. Right? But he does get the well, cramps well, to run on time, so that's okay. Sorry?
1: Because I know Charlie. Charlie won't be happy
0: with this again. Sorry? He's a shot kind of a guy. that I am as well a Peshat kind of a guy, in quotes. However, what one wants to do is one wants to strive to go beyond being what we really are. To try to expand ourselves in order to be able to absorb others. Not to block it off before it has a chance to analyze it. Many of us will, in fact, do that. Because we're of a certain bent of mind type of thinking, because we're trained that way or we enjoy that type and that's all that we really are. If anything, Rabbi has taught me, us, that, <clears throat> that one has to expand oneself. Rabbi areas of expertise were multiple. His area of philosophy or biblical Jesus, or pashanut, or, or gemara itself, whatever it may be, he expanded himself. His poetic, creative side was equally developed as his analytical, conceptual side. And he just was able to read all, appreciate all, pick and choose from the all that he read in order to create his philosophy of Judaism, which is beautiful. He created it. He didn't appropriate. Most people have to appropriate a philosophy of Judaism from somewhere else. And a fit may or may not work well. The fit may or may not work well. But if you have an expanded heart, mind, and soul, then perhaps one can work with all that's on the table and be able to enjoy the meal. If you only eat steak... All day, all night long, Then okay, you're a steak person. However, if you go to a catering, to a dinner, and you go to a catering hall, and the caterer puts not only steak, but all kinds of other delicacies, it tastes a little bit over here, you end up with a full meal. You both may be equally full, the steak person, and the person that dabs at all the other kinds of food may be equally full. But perhaps one might say that one becomes enriched more, the spices, the, the The fragrance, the different foods you're going to consume, is going to open you up. You both ate a good meal. You're both happy at the end. But though I would admit to Charlie that I am a Peshat person as well, and I earn my bread and butter by doing Peshat types of stuff and PhD work, that's all true, nevertheless, I would not want to limit myself to my PhD work and, and deny myself the beauty, the benefits, the glory of tasting from all other disciplines that I have out there. So I can read a book and find a little bit that's good in it, dismiss the dross that I don't like about it, and simply just push it aside and have enjoyed the wheat and thrown out the chaff. Right, so that's what we're going to do. But we'll see if that works for Charlie and for all of us as we go along. <clears throat> okay, so let's stop with this. Let's go to one more section over here. It's going to be another five minutes. This is from an appendix, which, tries, which is going to be page one of this, which is going to explain to us what Azor tries to do. Share yes, sure. that's page two of that. Page two of that. Give me back the other ones. Now, before we get to this, I want to read just one more line of page fourteen. One more line of page fourteen. Skip the first couple of lines. Indeed, herein may be said that to lie the undying service which Kabbalism has rendered to Judaism, whether as creed or as life, a too literal interpretation of the words of Torah scripture, giving Judaism the appearance of being nothing more than an ordered legalism, an apotheosis, apotheosis means to deify, of the letter which killeth, a formal and petrified system of external commands bereft of all spirit and denying all freedom to the individual, these have been on some cause the blemishes and shortcomings cast the teeth of Rabbinic Judaism. That's what Christianity said about Judaism. That all we are is law, nothing more than that. The supreme rebutter of such taunts and objections is Kabbalah. The aspect of Rabbinism was always kept well watered and fresh by the living streams of Kabbalistic lore. <clears throat> mystic schools and mystic circles flourished as nearly at nearly every important epoch of Jewish history, and the object of their studies was to penetrate the true meaning hidden beneath the letter of Scripture. Some of the foremost Jewish legalists were also pronounced Kabbalists of course, interestingly enough, the of Kairosh, or Ruch was a practitioner and a very pronounced Kabbalist as well. People are not aware of that, but he did both Kabbalah as well as Jewish law. Mm-hmm. And so that's where Kabbalah was studied. Correct. And this is a study of the law, which is the essence of Kabbalah, gave to its devotees not a shackled creed comprehended in formula only, but a religion of intense spiritual possibilities, rendering the Jew capable of a vivid sense of the nearness of God and filling Him with a constant longing for communion with Him. So that, in a nutshell, is really what Kabbalah is all about. It's an energizing... Right. Exactly. We had one study, a very interesting piece of uh, Yiddishalmi, actually, that the Torah really is Esh Lavana Agabe Esh The Torah is really black fire on white fire. And that one should study the black five of the letters, but one should not ignore the space between the letters. Even the space between the letters has to be interpreted, has to be understood. Interesting, of course, but an example... no
1: letters without the space.
0: Right, Correct. exactly. Right. The, the space will give the letters form. Right. So you need the space to understand as well as just the letters. The interesting point over here is that Amban will tell you that, of course, when you open up Torah, you see an entire text of Torah. The Ramban's introduction to his commentary tells you what's really there is one long name of God himself. In which case, if a letter is off the whole Torah's pasul, could you have violated God's name? Now, of course, we don't see that. We see narrative, we see law, we see Abraham and Hagan and and everything else. When the Ramban looked at the Torah text, he didn't simply see those narratives, sorry, the sections, the sections and Acts, he saw God's name written. All of those letters, all 300,000 letters of the Torah, three hundred three thousand of the Torah, spelled out God's name, which is, of course, a Kabbalistic teaching. Let's look a little bit now at the second teaching, just give me two more minutes, to explain exactly what we're going to be doing. Sometimes one is to study the text itself. Other times, one should first study about the text in order to understand the text. Difficult texts should be approached carefully, and if you have something to explain about it first, that helps understand the text itself. Okay, then we'll jump into it. From page 15, a onward, Zohar, consists mainly of a verse exposition of the Torah, of the type known in Hebrew literature as Midrash. This discursive style of the work and the amount of extraneous matter which has been intercalated in the original text renders this fact liable to be overlooked. It has therefore been one of the subjects of the church, so to keep it clear before the eyes. Zohar's verses of the scripture are frequently, and usually difficult to follow, on account partly of their far character, partly of their technical language. It's going to take us to realms that you will never believe. Partly of the abrupt and un- manner in which they are expressed. The point which I judge to make is often highly elusive and not to be grasped with close and attempted scrutiny. Thinking can we apply this remark to the expositions of the first chapter of Sheet, contained in the pages, etc. of the original text? On these pages there rests a special exceptional obscurity, which it is to be feared the translation has done little to dispel. It is therefore advisable to ask them observation setting forth the views of which chosen have sought to guide themselves through the intricacies of these pages and which are determined this version of earth. Now, here's the key. An endeavor to understand these pages is all the more necessary as we must sur- sur- surmise a priori, which means in the very beginning, that, the, that they contain some of the most important teachings of the Zohar. And we do indeed find on examination they are capable of yielding light on two of the most fundamental tenets of the Zohar. Distinction of divine grades. What does that mean? It means that the way that God created the world was through the power of sefirot. We have a sefirot chart here. This is I want to give that to us next week. Sefirot creation was not the way you think it was, but rather the infinite essence through a series of emanations to emanate. As the sun emanates its rays, so too the zohar. You want to use this analogy? But it's a poor analogy? Hashem re- emanates a series of divine gradations till so you come to the weakest. Divine gradation, which is the highest of the human gradations, and that contact point is where creation takes place, or called malchut. So that's divine gradations. We start at Teter, the crown. The crown is closest to God. You have da'at Binah, Hochma, etc., etc. Ten sefirot, ten emanations, ten sefirot spheres, each lower and lower in spiritual energy, sort of like. The sun, when it first expresses its waves of light and heat, is how many thousands of degrees? 10, 15, 20,000 degrees, would we say it was? And then yet when it comes to us, it's no longer 20,000 degrees, it's 60 degrees of heat. So, there are gradations of divine essence, right? is the way the Kabbalah views creation. The infinite could not create the infinite, like this. Rather, there had to be a slow, gradual gradation, emanation of divine essence. And even, in fact, what the Zohar does not teach, but which comes out later in the Luria, 200 years later, Kabbalah, is that on the lowest level, the divine essence, when it was about, when it entered into the receptacles of creation, the physical receptacles, it exploded those Kelim is the term that's used, and the way Zohar sees that spread out throughout the entire world is the sparks of divinity, which is what you do when you do a mitzvah. Anything you do, you are saying LeShem Yehud I do this mitzvah, which we sometimes say before tefillah, for the purposes for the purpose of Yehud to unify the divine sparks that were scattered as a result of. Creation, the infinite coming into the finite. Mashiach will come when we finish the job of gathering in all the sparks. Every beracha, every mitzvah you do gathers sparks of divinity. When you attempt to rebuild that divine structure, and one can accomplish, Mashiach will come. So that comes two hundred years after this Zohar comes. That's Lurianic, so Lurianic Kabbalah. Right now, the Zohar is concerned about two issues. The distinction of the divine grades, sefirot, lower and lower emanations, and the potency of the sacred name. What do we know in Hebrew as a sacred name? Shema Meforash,
1: the explicit name,
0: right? Which we never say, right? (laughs) Because you could destroy worlds with that name, right? We don't say it. We never pronounce the Shema Meforash. Can I say it? It has power to it. The Gemara is an interesting statement that Yeshua was able to accomplish all that he accomplished through the use of Shemem al Not to elaborate, expand, or discuss, or analyze those Talmudic statements. Not for now. But Shemem al was viewed by Kabbalah as having incredible power. And so providing the key to the whole of its esoteric secret doctrine. One. One of the most characteristic ideas is that God, while well, essentially one, is yet found in various grades or degrees. Sefirot these grades, quote-unquote, turn out on its to be degrees of creative power. Degrees of creative power arranged in descending or ascending order according to the sphere in which each one functions and the stage of development which it postulates in the created universe and which thus constitutes, so to speak, its opposite number. Don't try to say what that means right now. Thus the highest grade on the top of the level, which we'll see again next week, Keter, corresponds to sheer nothingness. And the lowest grade which is at the very bottom, to the conscious soul of man. Do we see it it's with its opposite? The highest grade, which is closest to God, which is Kete, which is God Himself almost, that corresponds to nothingness because there's nothing when you come to God. God is everything. What's beside God? Nothing. nothing. In the Zohar, God is viewed in two distinct realms. As the infinite, the Sof. But also as the N, alafiud nun, as holy nothingness. God is so full of everything that is that there's nothing else. So God is equal then to nothingness, as just pure
1: nothingness. Well, I would rather say allness than nothingness.
0: Allness is a better word. <coughs>
1: yeah. Allness. Mm-hmm. But it's also
0: with this opposite. Because if you're all,
1: there is no there is. It's, We run out of words.
0: Okay. So what else is there? Nothing.
1: Well, oh, that's the question that you brought up. How could he create if he is
0: all? Well, he does not exactly. Until, the only way he can is through a gradation of creative powers.
1: That oh, is what all that really
0: means. Less than you think. Mm-hmm. We are less than we think we are. Mm-hmm. But let's go forward and see. So the highest grade corresponds to share nothingness, and the lowest grade to the conscious soul of man. The creative power in itself is conceived as thought. Creative power of God is thought, which in the process of creation becomes light. The primal light, or God creates light in the very beginning, is utterly beyond human comprehension. But as the grades descend, the lights which form, as it were, a vestment to one another, each will close the other, swim into human comprehension until between the lowest grade of God's power, creative power, and the conscious soul of man, a close communion is established. We attempt, we strive, to come into contact. Devekut in Hebrew. Usul in Arabic. you prefer that? Wassalah in Arabic means Devekut in Hebrew. So the Attempt mind, communion. Is, is the, the mind.
1: mind a, a the mind is finish? the
0: bridge. Exactly. It the is. mind is that or the soul is that which connects. That yes. Which is the lowest point of divinity, the highest point of humanity. Right? The main purpose of the Zohar's exposition of the first chapter of Bereshit insofar far as it's contained in the pages of Bereshit seems to be to derive this doctrine from or read into the text of the scripture. The way in which the scripture is made to you, the side of the news of the house. The, the first grade, the most mysterious and incomprehensible, indistinguishable from the insof, soft, limitless, uncharacterizable, and corresponding to absolute nothingness in the work of creation, is not directly mentioned in scripture, because you cannot mention it because it's incomprehensible, unless it is alluded to by the letter bet. Where does the Torah start with? Bet. Bet she. What does bet mean? The bet of the word, the sheep. Implying as it were, so to speak. Now, what does the bet really mean? Forget the text right now. Bet means, What does the bet mean over there? In. in. The word bet, bet, bias, bet means in. Right. So the bet over here means, so speak, implying that it went, so to speak, into itself. And so made a start. For God to create, He went into Himself. And created in himself a space and opening within which the finite world can exist. So God does not create outside of himself. Why not? He cannot do so. Why not? Because God is infinite. And therefore, Be'Reshit tells us that God has to go within Reshit, within himself, within to begin, allness. within the allness, to try to create. One second. Implying that it wants to speak into itself, and so i start. The star is just in a flash. Light, flash, Zohar. The word Zohar means light. Which thus releases the creative powers of the limitless. From this inwardness, Be Betoch, resulted a point or focus capable of infinite development and expansion. This is called in the scripture, Reshit. So in the middle of Reshit, that tiny hole which became infinitely creative, within the allness of God, that's Be'et Betoch in Reshit, beginning. And it's identified by the Zohar, with chokhmah, wisdom. Hashem bi-chokhmah yisad God created the world with chokhmah, with so, wisdom.
1: Can we ask, is this separate from Hashem? This it
0: is creation. within Hashem. So, the world this. is within Hashem, is this formulation.
1: So then this is Hashem. This yes. Table, this thing, this it's
0: within this. Hashem, but not is Hashem. Within Hashem is correct. I won't say it is God, because that's pantheism. Mm-hmm. It's within God's allness. We are all within <laughs> God's allness. Different, degrades, different grades of us is within dif- different closeness to God or less close. This is less close.
1: So we're part of Him, but He's not part of us. That's
0: exactly right. Yeah. See it further. The next world...
1: This is all sounding very much like what we studied last year
0: uh, with the atom. Oh, the atom? Oh, the atom. <laughs> the atom. That <laughs> was on chat mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. With the
0: atom. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, well, that's really what we're going to talk about as we go along. The connecting link between science and this. It's an amazing, interesting insight that the most advanced field of astrophysics is going to find a lot in common with Kabbalistic teachings. It's interesting. I'm not saying that we are bound to hold by any of this. I'm simply happy to learn this, read it, understand it, take a little bit home, and enjoy it. That's all. You don't have to do any more than that, from my point of view. I don't have to believe in it in total, for me to be satisfied and happy with what I've learned. So that's up to you to how far you want to go with this. Two more minutes. The next word, created, bara, according to the Zohar, denotes in this place the expansion of reshit. Remember what sheet was? Within the allness of God, that little beginning of creative power. Now, within the expansion of reshit, which is bara, which produced a palace or house, containing in itself the germ of creation. Now, here's a very shocking statement that I'm sorry to read for you. This place is called in Scripture Elohim. Look at the words now. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the middle of Reshit was created Elohim, which means a palace. This place, this palace, is called in Scripture Elohim. We always understand the word Elohim to mean God. External to the creation. Zohar sees this very differently. Right? Don't go away. And it constitutes the third grade, the artificer of the creation. Because Elohim is ultimately the creator. But Elohim is not really... It is within God, obviously. But it is not God, as you pointed out before. It's wow so far. By the Zohar, it is called specifically Elohim Hayim, Living God. The word Elohim being a generic name for all the grades. Its creative powers or faculties are pictured as letters or seed, or divided into an active and passive principle. The active principle is called in the Zohar heaven, and identified with the, Zohar, with the voice. That's called the voice from heaven. The passive principle is called in the scripture earth, and in verse 2 it is identified with the primordial elements. <coughs> the terrestrial the celestial and the spiritual worlds right all this is in saying
1: that this is um, Elohim could be um, the physical life of the universe is that what he's saying say it again Elohim uh, denotes the physical life of the universe
0: not yet I can't say that yet the same way that in advanced physics you have the first you have the big bang Mm -hmm. you have dark light Because it doesn't, it's too, um, it it takes time to cool off and for the atoms to fall, for the light to escape. So, there's no life yet. So, bless you. No life yet. Not there yet. One second. Up to this point, this comes back to Joey's point, there's been no clear differentiation between creator and created. The creation has not yet emerged from the realm of potentiality. From this point, however, the two are distinguished. The Creator using and the created obeying the voice is indicated in the Scripture words, and God said. The Zohar does not want to run into the problem of almost saying that Hashem is human-like. So it goes, it's sort of like, has Hashem beyond, beyond our discussion? We only could speak about after that infinite, after the most mysterious and soft, limitless, when betokh atzmo, within himself, betokh within his, his, own self, created a space, bara created a space, which he called Elohim Hayim, which has the potential of creating everything else. So that, so we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking of Hashem Elohim as just being this being out there that commands, as an old God creating and commanding. That's paganism. So the Zohar tries to keep away from that problem, and to so that the Ensof is indescribable, incomprehensible, it's beyond all knowledge. We can only speak about lower levels of divine gradations, namely Elohim, namely the space, namely Betocht. But the Ensof is limitless, incomprehensible, and cannot be spoken about. Now, and God said, really, is a voice. It's not really Hashem, purely Hashem. It's within Hashem. But the voice comes from that little space of Reshit. The voice henceforth issues in a series of ma'amarot, creative utterances, which shape the material universe Or the language of the Zohar imprint in and inscribe letters. Letters have power. With a new development of the creation, there are, new, there are issues, new grades of the Godhead, which are called by the scripture, days. Which, good, again, is very interesting. Okay, one more paragraph. The first ma'amarot, of the Zohar, produced light in three grades. One called light, the second firmament, and the third is darkness. The first needs to be regarded as the light of mind, the second as that of light proper, and the third as that of fire. The first is called the right, the second is called center, the third is left. The first vanished as soon as it appeared, light of mind. The second became the right. This is apparently derived from the verse, and God saw the light, there's a center, that it was good. And God divided between the light, that is the right, and the darkness. Light, darkness. That was the center and the no, left. Does, does,
1: what does the light of mind mean? Does that mean <coughs> pure consciousness?
0: Yeah, pure consciousness. Physical
1: consciousness.
0: But, but it disappeared. It's God physical, God's consciousness. God has the third gradation. We're at the four, third or fourth gradation okay, right are now.
1: Talking now about uh, physicality. Now.
0: Not the, yet. I say not yet.
1: We're not there yet. No. So, whose mind are we talking about?
0: God's mind. Elohim's. Il-Kin. Well, not even God, not Hashem, but elkins mind which is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. The center was there upon... It's, it's not interesting, it's striking.
1: That charge you have in, is it? that? This is
0: one of the charts. There are many charts, but this is one of them. Another chart. Yeah, this is one that we'll see next week. The center was there upon given continued existence in a category of time called day and a darkness in a category of time called night. To produce these is the function of the next grade called in the Scripture one day, Zohar, right, or sometimes chesed, kindness right. We always place right on left, if you notice, Kabbalistically speaking. Because right is chesed on din, which is left. You'll see on the right side of this, chesed goes on left. Right? So that's what you want to do. In some way, not specified in the Zohar, the light and the darkness of the first day were upper waters containing, in solution, as it were, lower waters. The second ma'amad created an instrument for separating or liberating the lower waters. I don't want you to read any more. Let's read one more. The instrument is called firmament, expansion, you don't have it. The upper waters are characterized as, as male or as female to effect the separation as a function of the next grade of divinity called in the script the third day and bezoha, the zohar left or gevurah force, power, force. And he goes on to explain the next ma'amad, the next ma'amad, the next ma'amad, all of this is what he tries to convey as to what bereshit really means. In a Kabbalistic scheme. Now, we all here would agree that what we just read in the Kabbalah and the Zohar has very little to do with what the our text, tells us. But we don't want to be bounded by our text alone. Why? Because, as the Zohar said in the beginning, woe to he who only reads text. And yet, swath in, in the raiment. Right. Don't miss the swath for the raiment. On the other hand, certainly we need to be rooted and grounded in our text. One might perhaps say that what you need is really both. What you really need is a dialectical tension, having the spiritual expansiveness of being able to explore beyond the Word, but also the wisdom of returning, right, of returning back and not saying any more than one should say about it. The sh is very important over here as well. So you, you expand and you come back rooted in your text. You're able to enjoy freely float, floating rays of sunlight as you expand, but as long as you know how to find your way back, how to remain rooted in a text, you'll be okay. But if you end up floating too far and you cut your umbilical cord, you'll float off to space and end up end as Ben Zoma, Ben whatever or whatever. Why is that not the ultimate?
1: That's
0: an important question it is for some people perhaps for Ben Azayim and Zuma it was but the way Bode Olam created us in the world is to do Tikkun Olam and not to be so self-absorbed to only be concerned about our own our own infinite expansion and expansiveness maybe that's what one does after death perhaps to spiritually expand closer and closer however but we still have the obligation of returning rooted and and choose life and and do tikkun olam. So on some level, at some point, you're right. That may be the ultimate. But it's not for everybody at all points whenever you choose to expand consciousness to include the allness. Rather, you have an obligation of doing tikkun olam and having others recognize as well, which is what Abiyakiva did. The others chose the former. I'm not saying they were wrong to choose the former. They don't comment. Once they left us, they don't come back to tell us whether it was right or wrong. Ben Azai ben Zoma, think the Shabbat Noviya, think they.
1: Might
0: have been that they reached that point. Perhaps. Yeah. Their thinking may have been. Our view may not be. The truth of the matter is that you're right to the extent that the Gemara does not say anything negative about Ben Azai ben Zoma. Rather, the Shabbat Aviyah, yes. His response was he brought back not the spirituality of what he experienced, but rather the demonism of what he experienced. To him, it was all, at the end, it was so bright the light, he closed his eyes and experienced only demonism. demonism. So therefore, it was negative for him. But the others are not viewed negatively. But perhaps our goal is to come back and bring the teachings in a rooted context. In a context that we're finally grounded in order to halakha, in order to be able to teach others. So you end up with a divinely spiritualizing understanding of what halacha is all about. And thereby you mend the world. That may be perhaps one derech. We won't go to that right now. Next week we will begin the Zohar reading just one or two pages of it and then go to our next doors. Thank you. Baruch